drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Welcome to Drive-By Cinema, this experiment in vanity publishing gone wrong, as two people trapped in COVID lockdown <laughs> review sci-fi movies. Sniggering in the peanut gallery is my co-host, Paul. <laughs> okay, hi, hi, and this is my co-host, Richard. I have to say, vanity publishing gone wrong. I'm not sure about that. This might be a vanity publishing gone right. I mean, this is the nature of vanity publishing, isn't it? That it's unsuccessful and ultimately... The, the, the content creators have to pay for it. Well, I think it's gone wrong in the sense that, you know, we start off as normal human beings just watching films and we end up driving ourselves crazy, getting increasingly irritated by people earnestly trying to make art that they, <laughs> <laughs> they devote their lifetime to. Are, are you saying we're petty and peevish? Because I have thought of that about myself. I certainly couldn't make even a 30-second infomercial at even 0.1% of the standards of the movies that we watch. So oh, do we have a right to comment in the way that we do? I guess as consumers we do, don't we? But they're just getting worse and worse, Paul. And that is that a coincidence? Oh, well, I was, I was saying I was negative. You, you, you appear to be embracing your negativity. They are getting worse and worse. I mean, Tenant was a high spot for me. And then since then, nothing. Yes. Oh, well, I didn't like Tenant, yeah. I tell you what about Tenet, you don't understand that bit on the on the highway. Well, I mean... You get that wrong. You you think he should have been reversing or shouldn't have been reversing. Well, I don't. I need to draw a diagram with you. We need to... Do, I, I don't get it. We need to do a whiteboard. Well, this is the point. And the fact you need to draw a diagram proves my point that the movie doesn't work without serious exposition. You know, you get what you put in, don't you? Things that are worthwhile need a bit of effort. Can't have everything spoon-fed to you on a plate. No, no, no. I'm not going to pay a movie ticket and be expected to think. That's not how late-century capitalism works, Richard. Hmm. Uh, what I was going to say is I think we do have the right to be negheads. We do have the right to be negative Nancys. I'm not using Nancy pejoratively before you get angry. We do have the right to be negative Nancys because, I think, because of which magazine and also Autocar or Auto Trader, isn't it? You know, there's, there's a law that says consumers can be bad-tempered little fussy mugs. So I say, proceed as we are. Let's not try and change who we are. We did not like The Vast of Night, but plenty of reviews did like it, and plenty of our wow. listener correspondents have said that they liked it. And they cite particularly the cinematography, those long tracking shots where they move through, you know, from like the switchboard right through the village to the <laughs> basketball court or the radio station. <laughs> Why we didn't see that? Uh, well, I, I, we didn't. We didn't see it, and if we had, then we might not have appreciated it anyway. Can I just interject here with some observations about this? I mean, Robert Altman is famous for his seven-minute tracking shot at the beginning of Shortcuts, is he not? A nineteen ninety film. He's kind of landmark film uh, that he that he he peaked with, and uh, I have to say, I found it really dull—a seven-minute shot, continuous shot. The other thing to say is. Yes. I mean, I'm sure there are lots of really, really, really nice, not aesthetic, cinematographic decisions in this movie. But in what sense did they outperform or outgun the Coen brothers, for example? Or even David Lynch, who did a lot of similar kind of long shots, didn't he? Long, restful, patient patient shots. I mean, what was... Why why was this groundbreaking? There are some movies... That make a point about this, aren't there? Like that 1917, the World War One movie that came out, 
last year, was it? That was, I think, in large yeah. part, just one shot as they as a guy runs through the, the trenches and stuff, delivering the communique. And that's to be that's to be admired from a perspective of mastery or from a visceral perspective as a, a cinema cinema goer. I mean, well, it might serve that's... the plot as well and the pace and the tension of the whole. Okay, piece. so it wouldn't just be clever, clever. But none of that is true of the Vast of Night. That kind of shot is a bit of a trope in horror movies, isn't it? Where like you're, it is, yeah. it's sort of like the spirit is moving from one soul to another, or going to possess some someone or something. It didn't mean anything in this yes. in the Vast of Night. It was just a trick. It didn't just like no. just like that crap at the beginning with the Paradox Theater stuff with the TV. It didn't add anything at all. So nah. you're, tr- you're right. It had it had no visual, semantic, or semiotic value, did it? No, at all. So, so, uh, so, our beloved listeners, I, I think, I think we've done very well to engage and support your opinions. <laughs> come at us, bro! But please come again, come again next week. Yeah, we'll we'll ignore what you think and uh, disagree with you again. I imagine. No, I think the point with Last of the Vast of Night is, you know, these long, lingering shots that you know pan and and describe a whole atmosphere. It's great, but they're also really, really dull. Nothing happens. It's just boring. I'm sorry. Oh, God. Yeah, speaking of nothing happens, what about this next movie? Ah, well, shall we get on to corrections before we do that? Okay, I say trepidatiously. Can I just correct this episode, what's, what is happening right now? Uh, you didn't say which episode this was, Richard. It is episode 11, one, one. Or is it? Or is it 12? Now you've got me doubting, but I'm fairly certain this is eleven. No, I think it's it's eleven. I think, yeah, yeah. Amazingly, you see, this is how this is how lockdown psychologists work. I've, I've sort of forced you into the role of being responsible for remembering which number it is. And it's <laughs> that's not your job at all, Richard, is it? You say. I'd like to think of it as a shared responsibility. I have a correction because last week. Oh God! No, not last week. In the Tau episode, I had claimed that it was all very white. Completely forgetting that one of the other prisoners was not uh, not a white person, mm-hmm. but then he was only in the film for two minutes just to get killed, wasn't he? So perhaps like precisely, yeah, could be forgiven for thinking. Otherwise, I think uh, I think we're all doing perfectly well. So in this small world of movies that we exist in now, I mean, there's not much else to my life at the moment apart from this work. But I mean, what can you do? You're not allowed to go outside, are you? I think the same point can be said of uh, mute. Is that the black characters are, are just villains? That they're not fleshed out into real characters, so to speak. True. So, readers' letters or listeners' letters concerning my egregious comments. I think the first podcast that uh, well, they were meant to be humorous. There were only two women in the movie, and I suggested it was it it lacked diversity because of that. So, uh, samples and populations were equivalent sizes, so to speak. Yeah. I think I did apologise for that casual sexism, or rather, the implicit bias of saying this about a women's movie, a, a movie, a movie with women in, rather than a movie with men in. But it ired one listener so much that they suggested that I was a rather small velociraptor uh, <laughs> in my thinking. I was a dinosaur in my thinking, and that uh, I should go to battle with the historical memory. Of the suffragettes and see who won. So I just, it's like a Pokemon competition between me as a di- as a, a backward thinking dinosaur and the forward thinking suffragettes. And they suggested the suffragettes would win because they were heavily armed and trained in judo. But Velociraptors were rather small, Paul. They were about the size of a turkey. 
<laughs> so when you say a rather small velociraptor, you mean a normal size velociraptor, ah, which was a normal size one. Yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I've already been belittled by being called a velociraptor. I think not a small velociraptor. It's time then for the musical sting that will transport us into this week's film. Okay, so Richard, remind us. It is Io that we are watching this week, is it not? Io! Io. Actually, this film has got a confusing uh, number of different names. It is known as Io, and I found it by looking up Io. But I also noted that it seems to bear the title Destination Io. Whoa. In which geography does it do that? Oh, I mean, it was just on Netflix with a title card at one point saying Destination Io. And then elsewhere, it just said Io. Confusing. Wow. It's especially confusing. At no point during the movie do we go to or see Io. (laughs) Selling the biggest lie up front, isn't it? 2018-2019, this movie. So we don't go to Io, which, reminders is a moon of... Is it Jupiter? Of Jupiter. It's a Jovian moon. The largest moon, yeah. And, you know, we've been all over the solar system, haven't we, on this series. We started out on Mars. We've done Earth quite a few times. We went to Moon. Uh, Europa, you took us to Europa, lamentably. And that's another Jovian moon, so there's nothing stopping us going to Io, I wouldn't have thought. Except that it's sulfurous volcanic hellhole. But other than that, I mean, there's no reason why we couldn't go there. Uh, but no, uh, instead, this movie is completely earthbound from the first moment to the last. And as you say, I mean, if it were inhabitable or not, we never find out because... Well, we assume it is because there's people sending emails from there, but we never actually go there. She does email her boyfriend, who's gone to I.O. So this, I mean, really, a better name for this movie, if it was going to be called something more accurate, as it were, would be Email Destination (laughs) I.O. Or Sleepless in (laughs) I.O. Except there's not much loving going on here. You know, uh, this is very much concerned... We don't really see the inner lives of our characters at all, do we, in this movie? But yeah, shall we attempt to, to, to create the backstory for our, for, our, for our esteemed listeners? It's going to start off very confusing, and it's going to end up very dull, isn't it? <laughs> for some reason that's not properly explained, the world has endured some kind of cataclysm, the consequence of which is no one can live here and everything has basically died. It seems to involve... And I don't really know this, but I'm inferring clouds of ammonia rolling across the yes. surface of the earth and settling because it's heavier. So not acid rain, but alkaline, alkaline rain. And because it's a heavier than air, uh, a heavier than air gas, it's settling in the valleys and the lowlands uh, and killing off everything that's there and the cities and stuff are all vacated because of this blight. Don't know why this has happened, okay. but it's happened. So we have ammonia. Ammonia blight, yeah. Okay. Ammonia blight. Maybe, I don't know, maybe the body shop uh, made too many rainbow rainbow bath crystals. And I don't <laughs> know whatever happened. But there's too much ammonia in the air. And uh, this has led to the fact that algaes no longer have chemosynthesis, whatever chemosynthesis is. But thank you for that phrase. I've never heard of it. Do you know what the phrase chemosynthesis would make? I didn't notice that. Is that what she's? Because at the start, we're following a young lady. Well, let's, let's just do the backstory. Can we get? Because there are so many little things like chemosynthesis I want to talk about. So yeah, well, let's continue with the backstory. So there's been a cataclysm. They're stuck in this uh, 
as you said, this ammonia ammonia blight. It's okay, um, Paul. It's okay, Paul. It's not a problem, this cataclysm, because they'd already been building a special spaceship which was going to go to different planets of the solar system. To escape. Not to escape, no. When they built it, I don't know how we get all of this in uh, the first 30 seconds of the movie, but somehow we do. And I remembered it because I was so horrified by it. But in the, in the first... Uh, <laughs> before the cataclysm happens, they've already built this special spaceship that's going to go to other planets in the solar system to collect geothermal energy. Geothermal energy. Yes. Well, let's just leave that there um, silently, shall we, and not comment on that. No, I'm afraid we've got to, because I wrote most of my notes about this one <laughs> sentence. Well, let's come back to that. Please make a note to come back to it, Rich, because we've got to set this story out, yeah. We have to, yeah. We'll put a pin in that. Okay, put a pin in that, and we'll come back to that along with chemosynthesis. Look, okay, so there's been a cataclysm. They're stuck in ammonia, ammonia blight. People are dying, and people have fled on a ship called Exodus to the Jupiter Jupiter's moon called Io. Is that not right? Basically, as a synopsis. That's right. That's right. I don't know why, but they decided that having a ship that was going to go around collecting geothermal energy meant it was quite easy for them to build a whole load of other ships to take everyone away. And they've all gone to Io, uh, leaving, I think, just a skeleton crew on Earth just to keep the lights on and look after things. That seems to be what's happened. Pan to our protagonist, uh, the heroine Sam, who is stuck on Earth. And uh, she has a famous scientist father who's, uh, you know, concerned with the, gene, uh, the depth of the gene pool, i.e., bi- i.e., biodiversity, and the fact that all the animals and all the plants are dead. So, but her father's not around, as we later find out. Yeah, despite the fact that basically all life on Earth has stopped, he, he thought it was a good idea to hang around. And although we don't really know much about him, do we? We don't, know, but except he was a famous biologist or botanist or some sort of that kind of thing. But, yeah, so all life on Earth has... He's got good hat game. Yes, all, in the kind of uh, the ghostly video link we see of him. But in this, in, this, in this Earth that has no life, strangely vines, deep, because they're trying to indicate that everything, everything has been left dormant like a ghost town, uh, nothing grows apart from lots of green vines over cars and buildings which I thought was strange. And, well, she is investigating, isn't she? She is somewhere in one of the cities, I don't know, in some sewer or something, and she's finding all of these insects, uh, insect larvae living in the water, and she seems to be implying that these insects have, over the course of her lifetime, not only survived the ammonia, but also evolved enough, in some way, to start living off the different chemical composition of the atmosphere that they're experiencing. Right, yeah. She says something about them living off ammonium ions, using them for oxygen. Okay, you've taken my point here. But, yeah, so she was underground. I thought thought she was incidentally discovering these uh, these insects, but as it transpires, uh, she's a, she's the daughter of a famous botanist, so it's probably intentional. At first, I thought she was like Wally, like collecting spigots and stop valves for some MVQ in a future plumbing qualification. <laughs> but but no, she's down there looking for insects and larvae and algae. Uh, specifically, she talks about a mosquito larvae and al- algae. And says, but currently there's no chemosynthesis. Whatever she wanted, chemosynthesis to be. Okay. Uh, and then, yeah, she goes on to confirm the presence of bacteria able to use ammonium as a source of oxygen. Uh, 
Now, uh, my understanding was that ammonium was NH4, nitrogen and four hydrogen atoms. I don't understand how ammonium can be used as a source <laughs> of oxygen fundamentally. Yeah, no, I had to look this up because I didn't really know what ammonium was. I mean, obviously, I know what ammonia ammonia is. Ammonium is the cation of ammonia. So this implies that it, so, yeah, as you say, NH4. at ground level, there's there's no oxygen yet. But yet, in this toxic atmosphere, very soon, she lights up a cigarette lighter uh, in the air. So I was confused. I don't know. Not only that, but she drives away in a quad bike, which itself needs oxygen, oxygen. to aspirate its engine. Yeah. So let's not bother ourselves with the fact that vines are growing healthily, that bacteria are using, have created oxygen out of ammonia. In this, in this airless world, lighters and uh, combustion engines can still function. Let's move on to, to, the, to, the, to the nubbins of it, which is that she's trying to engineer or find or select insects to pres- uh, to to uh, that will consume the ammonium as oxygen. Let's assume that's okay. That can happen, uh, and then will therefore, as they breathe, get rid of all the ammonium in the air. Is this not is, it, is this not her master plan, so to speak? Well, that is way more detailed than I understood her plan. I mean, you've obviously looked into this. She lives, by the way, up up a mountain, up a hill, because obviously you go above a certain level. We presume. There's not so much ammonia that it's filling the whole atmosphere. So you could get out of the ammonia clouds and carry on living a relatively normal life. Although, obviously, to go into the city, she keeps having to wear a mask, which we're all very comfortable with nowadays, of course. There's nothing unusual about that. Yeah. Very COVID, isn't it? Only two people in this movie, maybe three, if you count their dead dad. Oh, spoiler alert, he's dead. Oh, sorry, spoiler alert. Which, weirdly, she's very cagey about revealing. I'm not sure why. Yeah, so she goes up to her mountain retreat where she's got geodesic polythene uh, greenhouses and a telescope. She's living in an in an observatory. Makes sense. You often put them on top of mountains, don't you? Yeah. Perhaps so she can look through the telescope at where her boyfriend lives, which is on Io. Although that image they showed of a moon in front of Jupiter is way too zoomed in for a terrestrial telescope. I yeah, think. can I just say that the Unix system, or sorry, the system they used to email was like a Unix system from 1972. It was weird. Like, this is the future, is it not? Well, she had to scrounge it, doesn't it? Ah. She goes down into the city with her gas mask on, has to scrounge all the pieces. Oh, it's all repurposed. Well, at one point, her system breaks. You know, she's just about to press send to send something to her IO boyfriend, who's called Elon. Ah. The system stops working. And she determines, not really with... She doesn't really look at it, but she seems to somehow know that what that means is that her VGA cable is broken. And she has to go back into town to <laughs> to pull a VGA cable out of the back of a computer and a, and a monitor. and then drive So her way. aim is, well, either to look at genetic mutation or chemosynthesis or animals that mutate to be able to do chemosynthesis, which I guess is like produce oxygen via chemical reaction rather than a photo photoenzyme chemical reaction. I, but there's still light on Earth, so I don't know why she needs that. It's all weird. But anyway, so she heads back to her... She's got a bunch of bees as yes, well. Yes, she has. I was going to get on to, yeah. She heads back to her homestead uh, where she's growing these bees. Now, of course, we all know that bees are essential for the survival 
of Earth. If we didn't have bees, then all kinds of things would go wrong. So she goes back to her farmstead, and there, on the farmstead, it's either a salvage glamping tent she's got, or a very, very small bio- biosphere. <laughs> I'm assuming it's the latter. Yeah. It's not very sturdy, is it, though? It isn't. Yeah, because if you're going to have a biosphere, I wouldn't have your major membrane with the outside world to be to be cellophane, which she decides to use, <laughs> as we discover when, when, when a storm comes along. And these storms, nasty on this world, because it whips the ammonia clouds up and can you know cover your otherwise highland retreat with a cloud of ammonia. So she has to shove her, her mask on to survive and get through the night. But she's not celebrating the, the death of all violent and nasty animals, is she? No, she's a misery guts. No, she's not. Yeah. The whole film is miserable, isn't it? It's like misery encapsulated onto celluloid. And, you know, previously I would have very little sympathy for this, but it is another lockdown movie. You can really get your lockdown blues attuned to, to her misery and just the general isolation of her whole existence. Well, she is very much alone until some guy shows up out of the blue, out of the clouds, in a helium balloon. And he lands, rather impressively and accurately, right next to her and uh, hops out of his helium balloon capsule. Now, this is after we discover that Earth is being reborn in her small biosphere. And it's after we've also discovered that uh, anaerobic reproduction has been discovered in, in one of her insects. Now, I'm not sure what anaerobic reproduction means. I mean, anaerobic respiration or anaerobic metabolism, but this is the ability to have sex without breathing. What does this mean? It clearly means, and I don't know why you're confused about this, from the point you commence sex to the point of orgasm is less than a lungful, like Ah, 30 seconds. Somebody's put a plastic bag on your head. Which is not not that surprising, is it, really, if you think about it? I think anyone (laughs) could probably manage that. I could. So that's more shonky science. Which I think is going to affect scores at the end. Yeah. So, uh, what's his name? This young, this young wayward traveller, Mika, Micah, something like that. Now begins the most awkward phase of the movie. <laughs> the period of the movie where two people acting that they are strangers very hard attempt not to engage each other in conversation about much, whilst eating in front of each other for many hours. Yeah. Lockdown food alert. But what are they eating? Well, she's growing salad in her geodesic greenhouse, and she's popping honey all over it from ah. the bees. Salad and honey, that's what Is she's she? eating. Makes a change from potatoes, hey, doesn't it? Hey, steady on. That's the, 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 noble, the noble, humble potato shall not be smudged or asperged or besmirched here. Look, now have you seen Blazing Saddles, Richard? 1974, I think. Yes. And there's a moment, isn't there, where it becomes mise-en-scene, where they're watching Blazing Saddles, in Blazing Saddles, in a movie cinema. And then... I don't remember it Well, and then a character from another screen in the multiplex jumps Ah, off his screen and jumps into Blazing Saddles. Do you remember that, vaguely? I do. I'm wondering where you're going with this. (laughs) You've probably seen other movies that do that kind of mise-en-scene, haven't you? Where the movie, it becomes inside the movie, and then people move from movie to movie kind of thing. Well, I was thinking, you know, what is this man doing? He's just turned up, you know, from another movie. Obviously, Disney's up. Have you seen Disney's up? Because <laughs> it was just ludicrous. What's he doing in a parachute? What's he doing in, in sorry, in a hot air balloon, turning up? In a, in in a balloon. balloon. You're quite right. There's no explanation really given on where he's come from, what he was doing there, why that he's knocking around in a balloon. That continues to be a mystery, actually. We do know what he's attempting to do. He's turned up here to try and speak and... I think, to give a lift to ah. her father, okay. the scientist, Mr. Okay. Dr. Walton. I'll let that go. 
He's heard Walden's voice on the radio because she broadcasts it every day with her cassette tape over this transmitter that she scrounged up. So it can't be from that far away, can he? Unless it's a sort of shortwave radio transmitter that's broadcasting over the horizon. Have you ever ridden a hot air balloon, Richard? I have been in a hot air balloon, yeah, have you? No, but... Well, yes, I have, but not really for very far. What do you there mean? There was a hot air balloon. It was... Uh, they'd, Tethered. They'd lost, they'd lost their gas for whatever reason, and it, it crashed. It took off the weather vane on top of our garage, and then crashed on the, on the <laughs> municipal football fields about 80 yards further from, from our home. And so, obviously, you know, we went to see if they were okay. He let me sort of... Uh, they got the gas, gas canister working again, and they kind of took us up for a little bit and then brought us back down again. But no, I haven't had a real hot air balloon ride. I think mostly they took us up to stop to, to stop having to pay for our new weather weather vane. But but yeah, <laughs> but you've been on a real hot air balloon ride. Yes, I have over Cambridgeshire in a, on a very cold morning. So I, I mean, it's all dependent on the wind. Yeah. So are we assuming that he just managed to oh, get the wind entirely, exactly yeah. right that he could land exactly where he was going, aiming to go? I mean, this is what's going on here. Balloon pilots are pretty skilled at this, actually. Are they? The way balloon piloting works yeah. is the winds go in different directions yeah. according to the the altitude. Ah. And you can get a map of the different layers of wind. Or if you don't have meteorological society okay. stuff, okay. what you do is you can drop an object or spit over the side of the balloon and watch how the object travels through the different wind layers. So you, can, so you can know which direction your balloon is going to go if you descend. If you want to ascend, you can send up a small like party balloon <laughs> and you can watch what direction that goes in as, you, as it rises from oh, your wow. balloon. There's lots of laminar flow occurring, is what you're saying. Yeah. In between the different... Broadly speaking, you know, you're not going to get a big difference. You're not going to be able to do a U-turn. <laughs> but you'll be able to steer yourself left or right by going okay. up and down. As you go down... I think partly because of Coriolis forces, you kind of have an idea. I think you kind of know that in the Northern Hemisphere, you're going to swing to the left as you come oh. down because the winds will be going more in that bit. So there's, there is a science and a skill to it. When we did the flight, it was a, a you know, big group of us, I don't know, 10 or 20 people or something in a big basket. But it's still quite intimate. You know, you're all packed in this basket. You wouldn't be able to do it these days in COVID era. You know, the, what they do is, as the end of the allotted time is approaching, yeah. they tell everyone to look down and find an appropriate looking field as a landing spot. <laughs> and then they, you know, they'll nail it. They, they end up landing on that field usually. I mean, obviously they point you in downwind, show you where they're going to aim. Wow. From, and then they okay. usually... Well, okay, I'll let it slide. I'll accept the fact that he probably could get to Daddy's, Daddy's house. Now, he is quite a rude guest, isn't he? We can forgive her because one, it's her house. Her house, her rules. You know. Two, she's not been near anybody for a long time, so maybe she's forgotten how to speak to somebody. Three, she's of tender years, so perhaps her adolescent brain still isn't able to 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 receive and entertain guests in a in a way that we might find welcoming and warm. But there's really no excuse for him behaving like he does in somebody else's house. Do you not find this? Yeah, uh, maybe this explains why she doesn't say to him, "Actually, my dad's dead," because she was obviously trying to protect herself. Although she does say. He's up the mountain. I'm not sure when he's coming back. He could be. Oh, a few so days. we're supposed to infer that she's scared by this intruder. She doesn't seem scared well, by him, does she? She's she's not terrified no. by him. She's certainly wary, I suppose. And he, but as you say, he's he does rude. nothing to allay her fears, does he? No, no, no. You know, she gives him 
salad and honey, and he seems to enjoy it. I guess he doesn't have much salad. Where yeah, but he's from. really annoyed by the fact that she asks questions whilst he's eating, which, I, you know, I think is an abominable behaviour for a guest. I mean, if your host asks you a question whilst they provide you food that, that you've asked for, I, I, the very least you could do is answer answer her questions. Yeah. Terrible. And what example is he setting for the younger generation? <laughs> Indeed. I mean, she keeps up this pretense that her dad still may be around. It's fairly obvious that he's not because he sees her putting the tape recording into the transmitter uh, thing. And he, I think he knows at that point, doesn't he? Okay. His plan is to take this famous scientist who knows all about bees, tells people how to do beekeeping on the radio. On Project Longshot. He, he's going to take him to one of the last shuttles that's going to leave the Earth for Io. And it's leaving in like 96 hours. That's right. Isn't it? She hears this as well on her radio. She doesn't know how she's going to get there. She can't get there, can she? It's too far, because she has to travel by road. She has to use oxygen bottles. She hasn't got enough. How's she going to get there? She can't. He can fly over the ammonia. He can't. Ah, I didn't actually realise that was a plot twist. Okay, so that that kind of means that she's in, indebted to him. But there's a reason she wants to go to Iowa, and that's to see, see you know, her, her, her boyfriend. But, spanner in the works. Email arrives from boyfriend, telling her of a very, very critical development. And that is that he's leaving Io to go to Alpha Centauri. Is that not right? That's right, yes. So Destination Io, as this film is perhaps called, there's no promise really of of us going there now because everyone is going to Alpha Centauri. He's going to Alpha Centauri, yeah. And this is, you know, a 10-year voyage in this movie. Now... Uh, solar system travel is all we've seen so far, you know, and it's great that we can, they, they can get everybody on the rocket, it's called Exodus, on the Exodus uh, sort of shuttle scheme, Every, get everybody away to Io. That's wonderful, yeah. But that's a different kind of interplanetary spacecraft to, to one that can get to Alpha Centauri in 10 years, yeah. Now, Alpha Centauri, I looked this up, is approximately 4.24 light years away. Yes. Ooh, it's pretty close, actually. Very close. And would imply that they're getting there at half the speed of light. Well, he says how he's doing it. He says he's using a solar sail. That's the project he's working okay. on. Okay, well, well, I did a bit of relativistic math calculation. <laughs> Again, you know, if anybody's a fan of uh, audio-lingual methods of describing diagrams and now equations, here we go. <laughs> MREL, MREL equals M over the root of all of this, brackets, 1 minus, brackets, V squared over C squared, brackets, Brackets. Okay. So what that means is that that the rocket itself is going to have uh, an extra mass of about twenty percent, or a relativistic mass of twenty percent, to get it to Alpha Centauri. I think that that's it's quite a big ask, isn't it? Really. But if it's if it's solar powered, potentially, what kind of? I mean, when you're three light years from the sun, what kind of power does that give you? I don't know, really. That's a good question. Wow. Heck. Because this brings us back to this the whole energy plan that they had at the start which was sending ships off to collect geothermal yes. energy from other planetary bodies in the solar yeah. system. Now, the first question I have to ask is, why not just use the Earth's geothermal energy? It's slightly more convenient. <laughs> <laughs> it's also hotter, I imagine, than Io. You would have to think that, yeah. I mean, maybe Io has a thinner you crust. You would, wouldn't you? Uh, there aren't many... Or why not Mercury or Venus, the hottest planet? Mercury and Venus both have liquid cores. Mars doesn't. Mars, I don't think, has a liquid core. Uh, and the moon is solid through and through. Only the terrestrial bodies in the solar system have potentially liquid cores with 
potentially geothermal energy. Yeah. And uh, so I looked up geothermal energy and what it can produce. <laughs> a lot of dirt. It's interesting, isn't it? I I got this from a very useful reference for energy concerns called Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air. Are we talking here about heat sinks, essentially? Yeah. There, I mean, we do have geothermal plants on the, on Earth. It's technology that we have. And there are two ways you might conceptualise Can I guess before you confirm them? Okay. Energy. Let me guess the first one is you shoot some water down a borehole and it comes back up hot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, there are places in the world where it's easier and it's more abundant to get geothermal energy, either because, you know, the crust is thin and uh-huh. magma closer to the surface uh, or whatever. The rocks are particularly conducive to it. But geothermal energy is available anywhere. You dig down far enough, it will heat up. The problem... But they've gone to Io to find this instead. <laughs> yeah, that's what they thought would be a better move. That's right. And then send it back to Earth, incredibly. Well, the other problem is geothermal energy has the great advantage that, you know, it's not carbon intensive. It doesn't produce carbon. It's kind of free, you know, the Earth has already got it. And so it's got a lot of advantages. Unfortunately, it's not quite so easy to extract it. I mean, first of all, we haven't managed to bore down that far into the earth. You know, the the deepest boreholes are less than 10 miles or 20 miles or something. Not, and that, that may be a wild overestimate as well. I can't remember, but they're not very deep. The, the other problem is one way of doing this is exactly as you described. You drill a borehole, you shove water down, and hopefully steam comes back up if it's hot enough. But to get the water to heat up quickly enough, and, and you know, rock is quite... It's not very good at conducting heat, generally speaking. To get the water to heat up enough, you need to fracture the rocks at depth. So you're doing fracking, really. And of course, that creates seismic disturbances for the people living around it. People are not too keen on that. Is there another way for geothermal energy to be harnessed? You can do it more gently, of course. Iceland has got plentiful geothermal energy. The UK, not much, really. I think we've got one sort of very small-scale plant in Southampton, where they get combined hot water Whoa. and a very small amount of energy. The Icelanders have have managed to do geothermal energy. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it's much more... Oh, what geezers? Yeah, because it, it, it bubbles to the top in, in Iceland, yeah, so you can do a lot of it. The problem is, because heat doesn't flow particularly quickly through rocks, if you start extracting heat quickly... You'll just cool the rocks beneath you down. Cool the rocks down. You have to wait for them to heat up again, yeah. yeah. Exactly, yeah. Now, that's on Earth. Let's imagine that Io is significantly cooler, yeah? Which I'm not sure about, actually. I think it probably is. I think Io is the most volcanically active, but it's only the size of the moon, yeah, so it's quite uh, small. Uh, and obviously it's... There might be hot spots of activity there. Yeah. Okay. Io is heated by tidal forces. So because Jupiter is so big and Io is close to it, Relatively close. That's to right. It. Yeah, uh, it it is. What's the word? Um, deformed as it orbits. It's squeezed and squashed, and that heats the interior. Oh wow! So it might be quite warm. The Earth's interior temperature comes from two, well, three sources. One is we're basically still cooling down from our formation, and secondly, a considerable amount of extra energy is added by radioactive decay of materials in our crust and mantle. Sure, I think. Yeah, yeah. That adds quite a lot of heat. And the final one is there's some tidal heating of Earth as well. The moon pulls on us. That takes advantage of a hysteresis in the compression, yeah? Yeah, exactly. It's a hysteresis loop. There's, there's an energy loop in the middle that, that becomes actualizes heat, yeah. Wow. Well, that's, that's all fascinating. 
if you were going to use geothermal energy, you'd just use the stuff on Earth. You'd just drill into the Earth. Yeah. Here on Earth, you're better using solar, right? You're better putting down photovoltaics and stuff uh, because solar is hundreds of times more plentiful than geothermal energy is on the surface of the Earth. Out at Jupiter's orbit, where Io is, (laughs) the sun isn't as strong, which is kind of what you're alluding to as well with solar sails. So it's about it's about four hundred it's about four percent of the solar radiance we get at the Earth's radius. Yeah. Radius. Yeah, when you're on Io, perhaps, yeah, you might be it would still be more beneficial, I think, to use big solar panels. More still be easier. But you, you might go down to Io to get some But it's very low grade energy, it's just heat you get. Um uh, so you know, you can get electricity directly with photovoltaics, but but my next question is, is okay, they're geothermaling Io, presumably to, to send back to Earth. How do they send it back? Convex, concave mirror kind of thing? You know, are they beaming it back? <laughs> How do they beam this energy back? Well, I guess they give up on that idea, don't they, as soon as the cataclysm happens. Like, oh, yeah, abandon all ship, yeah, kind of thing. So, but, uh, okay, again, we'll let that slide. Original intent was to go out there and geothermal the shit out of it, and now they can't do that. Okay, so let's move on now to Project Longshot. U.S. Naval Academy and a NASA project from 1987 to 1988. It was the research that led to the precursor of the International Space Station, and it was an attempt to create a 13,000 kilometer an hour, 100-year trip to Alpha Centauri. Alpha Centauri. Yeah. Okay. Now, they, I mean, they certainly wouldn't have envisaged a relativistic mass of 1.2, the real mass. Uh, because when you think about that, if you're going at that kind of speed, half the speed of light, the implied relativistic mass really increases the total energy you need to to get up to that kind of speed. Yeah, it's already a, yeah. it's already a heck of a lot of energy, half the speed of light. It's like compound interest. It's a twenty percent interest on top of that, and that would imply that the fuel to get you to half of that needs to be carried along for half of the way. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. and that would imply that the fuel to get you to a quarter of that, which is even more fuel, would have to be carried. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> so I mean, they. I mean, if it was true conventional fuel we're talking about here, it would be an impossibility to get to these speeds because it would simply require. A huge, a gigantic fuel payload. So in 1944... That's why they were planning to go much slower. Yeah, 13,000 kilometers an hour and 100 years. So in 1944, Stanislav and Ulan looked at the idea of a nuclear-powered spaceship or rocket. Now you might say, how how does propulsion work in that scenario? I'm sorry, but it's exactly the same. Uh, just uh, the compound interest isn't quite so frightening as rocket fuel, traditional rocket fuel. It's liquid hydrogen that is heated by the reaction and therefore is expelled as it turns into gas. and That provides a propulsion. But it still implies a physical source of propulsion, does it not? And even if you were to have solar sails, you'd also have to have a physical form of propulsion. So I'm not going to buy the fact they could get to Alpha Centauri at half light speed. I'm just not going to buy it. I'm sorry. It implies some physical requirement for fuel. A solar cell, a, a solar sail. The idea behind that, of course, is you're using the uh, momentum of the photons hitting the sail as it bounces oh. back. Oh, really? Oh, sorry, I didn't know about that. So there are proposals okay. that use sails, uh, light sails, and we shine a laser beam at the sail to accelerate it. And push so it of course, along. the advantage yeah. of this is you're not carrying the fuel with you. The energy is all in the the, the, the laser emitter 
which you're remain you're staying here, you know, on Io or wherever. But there comes a point where she goes, she kisses him, or and he says no, and then he explains, uh-huh. and this is one of the weirdest bits of the movie. He explains that he'd let his wife die so he could live, or that he'd killed her so he could live. I oh okay. I, I was very dimly interested by the stage, and I'm like, is this when she shows him her tattoos? On oh, you see, I'm missing all these. As a fundamentally asexual being, I'm missing all these signals, aren't I? She shows him his tattoos. This is an invitation to sex, is it not? Her tattoos. I think that was a bit yeah, earlier. One is of one is of Euler's, Euler's equation, and the other is of Novel's evolvability equation. Oh yeah, an equation I'd never heard of because it's some kind of biological thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not a real equation. <laughs> Have you looked it up? Yeah, it's just like you know, if things evolve, if things change a lot, and the environment accepts those changes, add those two things together, it's like an economics equation, you know, like right, okay, made up, made yeah, up, yeah. doesn't really indicate numbers. Numbers can't be plugged into it. Euler's equation is fine, but it's not really. It's not. There's not much science, is it? In it, is there? I mean, it's well, it's just mathematics. Do you know a physical representation of Euler's equation? It's just, yeah, it's just pure mathematics. Isn't uh, it? At this point, we see her dad, don't we? And you were saying he looks, he looks, well, I I specifically thought he looked like Jordan Peterson, the famous <laughs> bad-tempered Canadian uh, psychologist. Yeah, there is an element of that. And what is his, what is his No, gig? wait, wait. He looked like Jordan Peterson dressed up as Sasha Baron Cohen. <laughs> so why is he considered such a great scientist? Why does everyone love him? He, his tape recordings that she's broadcasting are telling people how to keep bees. And, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of books on how you keep bees. I don't think that's such a big deal. And she's got a video of him. He's bred a pig that apparently apparently survives, but it looks like it's on its last legs and is about to die anyway. But he's bred a pig that is... Oh, Lucy. Yeah, Yeah. Lucy the pig. You know, it was was down on its four limbs, wasn't it? It wasn't walking around. It was like it was passing out or something. Yeah, But this is a breakthrough, apparently. (laughs) So... So that's it. And in the end, what happens? I didn't really pay attention in the end. She doesn't go and he goes. Is that right? Yeah. Well, God, this is the melodrama, isn't it? The, the whole thing. You, you know, when you said that she was keen to go to IO to see her boyfriend, I don't think she was ever keen to go. There was always seemed to be a question of he was desperate to pick up her dad and take him to the shuttle to go to IO. But then turns out her dad's dead. So, well, sure. Yeah, she could come along because he must presumably have the space to carry two people. But maybe she wasn't that keen. Uh, but then she tells him where the, all the helium they need. And then, uh, yeah, when it comes down to it, they carry his balloon down to the city where she can find some helium. I don't know why she's found a load of helium and thinks that's a good idea to know where it is. And then she decides not to go. Why? I don't understand. What's the point? So that's the end of the movie. He, he, he buggers off and she doesn't go. Just because they found a bee in her beehive. Is that why she's staying? And that was I weird as know. well because... Yeah. Her beehive was destroyed by this storm, and she runs up to it and she starts leafing through it, looking for bees, as if there's, you know, they're going to be hiding from her, not doing bee things. She <laughs> can't find any bees. But then later on, he's like looking through the beehives, and he finds this thing, and he comes to see her. Oh, and he finds the queen. Yeah, she picks it up. She says, it's a virgin queen. It's just hatched. But I swear you could see a little white dot on its back, which is what beekeepers paint on the queen so you can find it. <laughs> what, what do I know about beekeepers? Okay. What good is one queen? I don't get it. <laughs> there are, all the other bees are dead. What's, what's the it's queen? It's no use be? at all. It's absolutely useless. <laughs> so we've come sputtering in our chitty-chitty-bang-bang bang 
to the end of this movie. Yeah, I mean, what do you think, Richard? Shall we? Is it time for scores or not? It it is time for scores. But what does this movie mean? I always ask this question. Oh hell, you always ask this. I, I know oh, I do. I always assume uh, that you have a, a an intellectual uh, grassland oh, okay. allegory that well, the filmmakers are trying. To... I don't think it is allegorical. I don't know. It 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 isn't really written in that way. You know, it's not written in a way where Exodus represents our hopes for the future and Sam represents, uh, you know, our rooting to our rooting to emotional veracity. And it, it, it no, it doesn't mean anything like that. It's just, it's just, you know, it's supposed to be a dystopian view of environmental environmental health. You know? Well, that's it, isn't it? That's, that's all it is. It's supposed to be a response to environmental concerns. Isn't well, that it? it definitely is. Yeah. They give no indication of the cause of the disaster to environmental issues. They don't connect it to our current environmental climate catastrophe. I mean, I haven't heard anyone say, oh, by the way, there's going to be loads of ammonia released into the atmosphere (laughs) for no good reason. Is that a thing? I don't know. Maybe I'm not. And it's not a reflection on solitude, you know. Uh, So it's it's not a reflection on on ultimately, you know, a solipsistic view of, of the human condition. It's none of that. It it literally is just a bit of dystopian environmental science that's not based on science. So uh, uh, we can't really dress it up as anything else. It's just a character study of two people trying to figure something out and not being very interesting about it. Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of character studies of people under duress trying to figure things out, watch The Martian with Matt Damon. That's a much better much better, you know, that does explore the human condition in some sort of way, I think. Whereas this doesn't. Hell yes. What would we give the acting? Well, I thought the acting was the best part of it, really. I'm going to give it a creditable 6.5. Did you believe them, then, as characters? No, no. But, but that wasn't necessarily <laughs> due to their acting. I mean, sure. you know, you, you have to be given directions in a script to be distraught about your situation or, 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 or to be screaming at the other person. And they weren't asked to do these things, you know. So they were both two quite reticent characters that were, they, they, they were asked to play as, as as actors. So so yeah, they did the job. Six point five for me. What do you feel about it, Rich? Did the acting knock your socks off? It didn't knock my socks off because it, it's a very understated performance from both of the leads, yeah. isn't it? Anthony Mackie and Margaret Qualley. Anthony Mackie's, you know, seen him in other stuff. He's good. Look, I mean, what what can I say about it? I mean, it? he had a great brooding presence. Uh, great he did, acting. yeah. She was, you know, perfectly fine. Slightly the... naive, slightly idealistic, younger younger neophyte. Yeah, I thought the acting was creditable, you know. Yeah, I'll give it a seven for okay. acting. Right, let's move on to special effects, Rich. Okay. And action. Okay. You know, it's become, ever since like 28 Days Later and stuff, it's become a bit of a trope, hasn't it, of movies. Dystopian movies obviously have to do this to an extent, you know, of displaying an empty world. There's some reasonable bits of that. I wasn't entirely convinced by the, the clouds of ammonia lying in the lowlands, but actually that <laughs> looks unreal in real life as well. <laughs> Seeing mist in valleys and stuff is quite weird. But other than that, the special effects were very limited. We had the shot of Jupiter and his moon, which was too zoomed in. Not much else. No, we had nothing really, did we? Three? Two? 2.5 I'm going to go for. And no action, which is what we normally lump in here. Yeah, you know, I'll give it a three. Yeah, I mean, I think if if you're going to claim that your movie is science fiction, it does need some sort of special effects. I don't think you can be so genre-breaking genre, genre breaking that you 
you don't have that kind of stuff in there. We need to see what the hell is going on in Io with the rest of humanity. We need to see a little, yeah. Yeah, we need to see people, things being mined on Io and stuff like that. People in space suits. Those people at the end of the email going, hey, everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but going, to, going to Alpha Centauri tomorrow. <laughs> what a drag. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm packing for Alpha Centauri. It's really difficult. I don't know. What kind of socks do you think I should take? Yeah, so, yeah. Big score down on the special effects. Moving on, therefore, to uh, the script uh, and that kind of stuff and the dialogue. Well, it's just gobbledygook, isn't it? The script. Yeah. It isn't. It's all building up to this moment where she gets to stay behind and look after the bee. <laughs> the last which, bee on Earth. Which will never reproduce, you know. <laughs> and and doesn't she just kind of leave? And they don't actually say goodbye in any, in any... in any. There's no lasting parting shot, is there? There's no departing train. Do you know what, Paul? I've seen this movie before. Have you? I started to recognise wow. it. Wow! Not early on, but midway through. I must have watched it before on Netflix. It made no impression the wow. first time around. It's honestly made less impression the second time around. <laughs> and I was writing notes about it. I was quite keen and engaged with it, you know. But I cannot remember whether they actually had sex. It seemed like he didn't want to have sex. And maybe after and you can't he told they said goodbye. After he told her that he'd killed his wife or let her die, she might not have been so inclined. But then it looked like they were having an afterglow moment afterwards, I thought. But I don't remember. Wow. And that's a terrible tragedy for the movie. I missed all these subtle hints of intimacy. Well, look, you know, I mean, in any, you know, 1950s movie, you know, the whistling steam train is about to... S- I know, I know. But in any 1950s movie, there's a whistling, romantic movie, the whistling train is about to depart from the station. There's a swinging carriage door. Somebody's running along, you know. I mean... It's a classic movie trope saying goodbye, isn't it? And I don't think that was engaged anyway whatsoever here. So yeah, they totally whiffed. So the scripting was it, it, it wasn't focused and it wasn't coherent, was it? It didn't build to anything or build from anything. So I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to say a very disappointing four from me. So I will give it for all of these reasons. I will give it a three. Oh gosh, you're even harsher than I am. Now finally, on to uh, perhaps its shonkiest aspect, and that is the science. How do you feel the science was presented in this movie, Richard? Apart from everything we've already mentioned about the science, I want you to cast your mind back to the moment where um, Micah arrives in his balloon after his improbable landing. And he opens the capsule door. <laughs> he, he hops out immediately and throws up. Now, knowing what you know uh, and what I know about balloons, what do you think would have happened if that had occurred? Oh, I, I don't know anything about balloons, Richard. But you tell me. Well, you, you've been in one. Well, I'll tell you what would have happened. If you've just landed a balloon and you hop out of the basket immediately, the balloon goes back up. Oh, yeah, sure, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Probably really fast. <laughs> okay. And then later on, of course, he has to spend <laughs> a day and a half or more waiting for the wind to change when he's trying to get to the launch yes. site, you know, within 96 hours. What was he thinking? Daft idiot. So, I mean, let, let's, have, let's listen to Graham with a quick reminder here in the spirit of Scylla Black. I mean, one, the self-parking balloons. Two, uh, the white-spotted queen bees. Three, the improbable near light speeds to get into Alpha Centauri. Four, uh, the curious attempt to geothermally extract Io 
five weird ideas of chemosynthesis and oxygenation of ammonia and and weirdly that bacteria and insects can suddenly reproduce can reproduce anaerobically uh oh, wow the science is so shonky here i can only give it a desultory 1.5 i'm afraid hmm. i'll give it a one and let's move into overall and i'll say this about the movie overall it seems desperate to display its environmental credentials and be relevant and contemporary. And they're talking about bees because presumably when they were writing this was that the era where everyone was terribly upset about colony collapse disorder and the bees disappearing, which I think is a bit weird because wow. certainly honeybees are domesticated. You know, it's, it's like being worried that cows are going to die out you know, during the BSE crisis. I don't think it's a... I don't think it's a real fear. I think there'll always be bees because yeah. there'll always be people farming them. It's trying really hard to make itself environmentally conscious, isn't it? I think that's what it's doing. So much so that throughout all of her work she's describing, she describes it as eugenics. Do you hear that? Not genetic engineering, which is a scary word uh-huh. that environmentalists don't often like to hear. But apparently eugenics is fine. But that's And not natural... No, um... <laughs> Selective breeding or artificial selection, you know, not eugenics. There we go. So an environmental, environmental movie that uh, that aims to introduce some ideas from the past. Yeah. Well, the old, the old ways were the best, were they not? Eugenics, uh, homeopathy, oh, phrenology too. Let's bring back phrenology. So overall, given the fact that I found this dull, the science was bad, there are some cool ideas. What's the best thing about this movie? Well, just the shonky science. I mean, if it wasn't so shonky, it would be great. You know, the idea of uh, insects re- repopulating the earth with with oxygen is a great idea. Mm. Just not the way they presented it. Uh, it would have been nice to know how they were getting to Alpha Centauri in their rocket ship. It's a great idea, but I mean, flesh it out a little bit. Uh, what do you think, Rich? Uh, it's a big concept to tackle, right? It's the destruction of the earth and how the human race tries to survive as stretching out and becoming, you know, citizens of the solar system and the stars. Yeah, big ideas, but told on the top of a cold mountain top by a beekeeper eating honey and bell peppers. Sorry, I thought you were about to launch into mon- monkey magic there. <laughs> okay. So overall, is this a recommend or a... Overall, this is a damp squib of a four for me. I will give it a three. Ooh. And that's the benefit of two viewings. At wow, least. it's rather you underscore me, Rich. It is unharsh on this movie. Gosh. I think you need to see it again and again and again. <laughs> <laughs> it has come to that time of the podcast where I, in great anticipation and some trepidation, ask you if you have thought of any movies we can watch next week. You're saying, have I done my homework this week? Yeah, that's right. Needs to be handed in and marked. This is this is strange because most of my teachers did have this moment where I could see there was fear in their eyes when they were asking me this. <laughs> Why? They're teachers. I don't know. They could give me detention, but no, there was fear. Have you done your? You haven't. You you haven't done your homework again, have you? Kind of thing. And it's with great joy that I say yes. I do have choices. So moving on from the misery that was this week's selection. I have two more miserable choices for you, Richard. Well, potentially miserable. But here you go. I do have... I have done my homework this week, Richard. And what are these two movies that you're giving me a choice of? Now, you made a mistake there, didn't you? What? You made a mistake. I I have done my homework this week, Richard. You have? What is your 
homework. So I mean, any any great Miyagi teacher at that point would 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 re- re- reinforce that, Richard. You reinforce that with a compliment. I see. Yeah, let's try that again then. I, I've done my homework this week, Richard. Very well done, Paul. That's excellent. Thank oh, you. Oh, really? Really, <laughs> I am pleased. I knew you'd come good. Ah, now people uh, said well, that I was a fool to trust you, but I said yeah, no. I think, no, no, stop! I think you're overegging the pudding now. No, <laughs> stop! You're overegging it. I think now you're reinforcing a complex behaviour where I'll fail in order to get the excessive praise that comes after failure. <laughs> You've got to be really careful with this, Richard. Mr. Miyagi would not do that. He would just say, well done. Uh, just a couple of electrodes would sort out this conditioning. That's all I'll say. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're at pains to move on. Let's move on. Okay. So I've got two choices for you, Richard. I don't know if you know these movies. I'll, I'll, I'll announce them. Number one, your first choice. Choice number one is Colossal from 2017. Number two is Snowpiercer. That's Snowpiercer from 2012, which is a part French production. Have you heard of either of these? Not only have I heard of them, I have the advantage of having seen both. You watch them. And so... Oh, Christ. What I'm going to say is <sighs> that Colossal is not really a science fiction movie. It is a weird... It's a science fiction humorous movie. I don't think, I don't think it is. I think it's a weird concoction of a kaiju movie and a kind of art house comedy I don't know. It's very difficult to explain. A black comedy, maybe. Oh. But would you count Kaiju as science fiction, or would you count it as science fantasy? Or as just fantasy movie? I think in its original formation, a Kaiju movie might be science fiction. But yeah. at the point where you're watching Colossal, it is now just a kind of genre movie kind of theme that they're using, that they're hanging other concepts off. Oh, hang so, In a sense, it's got nothing oh, to wow. do with the original ideas of a kaiju. And as a consequence, okay. I don't think I can fairly select that movie when you're giving me a choice. Uh, but okay. I, don't, I don't deny it. You might want to see it and you might be excited by it separately. But I think for this podcast, this week, I'm going to have to say Snowpiercer. Okay, Snowpiercer from 2012. And this, again, it is a climate-based movie. Failed climate engineering. And leads to people living on a train that can never allow, can never be allowed to stop. Am I right in understanding that, Richard? That's that is exactly right, as I understand it. Wow. And it, I think it's from a French comic, and it's uh, now got a TV series as well, which we can no doubt talk a little bit. No about. way. Yeah. In fact, okay. I, I would suggest if you enjoy the movie, actually, even if you don't enjoy the movie and you have the time and the inclination, you might try and <laughs> pick up the TV series as well. Maybe watch some episodes of that. Because we could contrast the two. Okay. But that's optional. We'll see how it okay. goes. Okay. Do you know where Snowpiercer is available? Or for the benefit of our listeners? On Amazon Prime. And if you're a subscriber? Yeah. If you're a subscriber, it's free to watch. Bonus. That's it then, Paul. <laughs> Next week is episode 12. Snowpiercer. Please join us then. As ever, we'll be disgruntedly and somewhat bad-temperedly reviewing this movie. Cue music. Thank you.